please note, every episode is someone's individual experience. One data point is not representative of everyone's time in the Air Force. Do your due diligence. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. Welcome to another perspective, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. Today's guest is a 1982 graduate of Northern Arizona University who went on to fly the F-16 and A-10. He is rated as a command pilot and has held a multitude of command positions. Since retiring, he has continued his leadership through his position as CEO of the Mariposa Foundation and Peregrine Consulting, as well as a board member of the Falcon Foundation Board of Trustees and the Homefront Military Network Board of Directors. He currently holds the Anders Chair of Defense Economics here at the Academy, where he teaches cadets defense industry applications of economics. Ladies and gentlemen, Colonel Retired Mark Dippold. Good morning, Andrew. How are you doing? I'm good. It's good to be back in your office. It's been about six months six since months, we talked exactly, last, yeah. but um, here we are discussing economics and relating it to uh Hopefully, what acquisitions officers will be doing in the future, if I'm not mistaken about. I think not only acquisition officers, but more importantly, just operators mm -hmm. to be involved in the game. And I'll talk about that a little more later. Sure. So to get right into it, do you think you could uh, give us a little bit of background about your time in the Air Force? Sure. So you mentioned uh, that I'd flown the F-16 and the A-10, and that, was, that took up the, the majority of the early part of my career, uh, pretty much up until I was a captain or a major. Um, and that included flying uh, combat missions over Iraq and over the former Yugoslavia. Um, and then when I started to move out of the flying world for the career broadening assignments, as the Air Force calls it, essentially the Air Force, at least at the time when I was in, a common uh, mode was to do an operational assignment, go to school, then go be a staff officer, then go be operational, then go back to school and get another degree, and then go to a staff assignment. So they would keep doing that. And they also wanted to expose you to as many combatant commands as many different regions as possible because you know conducting operations and dealing with the politics of Europe is much different than in Asia mm -hmm. or in, in or in Africa so um, typically you'll find that you'll be moving quite a bit so my first assignment uh, I was a captain at the Pentagon um, and my wife was going to med school at Georgetown so I actually asked to go to the Pentagon which I remember when I called the assignment folks in the pilot shop they were literally laughing at me on the phone <laughs> I said look I'm doing it because I want to be you know near my wife and near my son um, so I led the Euronato branch. Uh, so essentially, I dealt with our uh, European allies uh, to include, you know, combat operations, peacetime operations, uh, foreign military cells. Um, really opened my eyes, and I remember coming to the Pentagon uh, with this attitude of the world is black and white, and I was not going to be a compromiser. And it took me about two weeks before the man that eventually became my mentor for life, it was a two-star general named Ed Eberhardt. He pulled me aside and said, Mark. The Pentagon is a land of shades of gray, and unless you learn how to compromise and not give up your you know, convictions, but you have to compromise, uh, this building's going to chew you up and spit you out. And so I gave my first briefing to the chief of staff of the Air Force uh, when I was a captain, and it was about whether we should be providing weapons and equipment to the Bosnians, just like we were doing for Ukraine right now. It's mm -hmm. a very similar situation. And there were a number of restrictions and requirements about training and all that. And so I was given about 45 minutes notice that this session, a tank session, which means just the chief of staffs of the Army, Air Force, uh, Marines, that the Navy was going to be in the room. 
And so I prepared my six-slide briefing <laughs> and stood up there in the uh, conference room for the chief of staff with a bunch of generals trying not to look scared. And I was all ready to give my pitch, and a colonel popped in and said, said something to General Fogelman, who's who the chief of staff was. And he looked at me and he said, Captain, I only got about 10 seconds. They want to do a photo shoot. Give it to me straight. And I said, okay. I said, sir, it's a really stupid idea, and we think you should non-concur. And he goes, got it, stupid idea, and he walked out. And I remember <laughs> looking down at General Eberhardt, and he gave me a big thumbs up, and I went, really? That's it? So I got back to the office, and everybody was like, how'd your first briefing go? And I said, I only said one thing. And I said it was stupid, and we should not. You didn't give your briefing? No, I didn't give anything. And so about 20 minutes later, General Eberhardt called me into his office and asked me, do you have a mentor? I said, well, I have flying mentors, but I don't have anybody like a staff guy. And he goes, well, now you do. And he became my mentor to include bringing me out here when he was a four-star and promoting me to colonel early and frocking me, meaning I pinned on early, all because of him. So when we get to the recommendations, you know, for cadets, find somebody who's, you know, five, six years ahead of you that's been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and get them to agree to be your mentor because they'll help you navigate. And that's mm -hmm. what he did for me. Uh, at any rate, my last assignment, um, I was at RAND. I was doing my senior service school, and I was working at RAND in Santa Monica doing research on ISR and you know, satellite tasking and pilot training, all these different uh, research projects. And then 9-11 occurred, and I got a call saying, your, assignment, your following assignment to the Pentagon has been canceled, and uh, you're going to Homeland, the Northern Command, which is the Homeland Defense Command, which didn't exist. And when I heard Northern Command, I thought, uh-oh. I must have pissed somebody off because I'm going to like a radar site in the Aleutian chain is what it sounded like. Mm. It sounded cold. And then I found it was going to be the new Homeland Defense Command. And it was led by General Eberhardt. He was okay. a four-star. He was the Nor NORAD commander. So that's how I ended up here. And eventually I was in charge of strategy for setting up the command. I was initial cadre. There were seven of us in Northern Command. And now there's probably a thousand people. Um, but it was really exciting to get to stand up a combatant command from scratch. And even though it wasn't flying, I still enjoyed it. Um, and when we moved here in Colorado, to Colorado Springs in 2002, the year after 9-11, it was our 15th move in 19 years. So we were moving every 14 months. Remember I told you they want to move you around? Mm. So I had been assigned in Asia. I'd been assigned in the Middle East. I'd been assigned in Europe, in the United States. So they were trying to see whether you're a one-hit wonder. Can you replicate your performance in different cultures with different, you know, restrictions and, you know, issues? And so that's one of the reasons they moved around a lot. Um, so over the course of my career, lots of schooling. And I think that's something as a cadet you're going to have to just accept, that in today's world, um, even though it shouldn't matter to people that are outside the military, credentials matter. So the fact that you went to the Air Force Academy to get your bachelor's degree is going to matter, right? People may not ask you, you know, what your degree was, and they probably won't ask you what your GPA was, but they're almost certainly going to be aware of where you went to school. But it won't end there. Mm -hmm. You're going to be a lifelong learner. So, you know, I got my – I was a double E comp side, double E major. Uh, I used that for six months because I had a six-month delay before I went to pilot training. And then after that, pretty much never again because I went to pilot training. Um, and then after that, they sent me back to get an MBA – it was an information systems and decision support. Then I went back to fly again. Then they sent me back to get a master's degree in uh, Homeland Security and emergency uh, management. Um, and then they sent me back to school on my own. I decided to do this to get my doctorate. And then fortunately, even while I'm here, they sent me to Yale to get a, uh, the education program, I'm sorry, the uh, executive education program in behavioral economics. And then last summer, I did the executive education program at MIT for AI and robotics. Mm -hmm. So you just, you're never going to stop learning. It's just going to keep happening. So it was kind of a continual thrash. But after a while, you just kind of get used to it and accept that's just the way it's going to be. Yeah. So I think that kind of is a good synopsis of, you know, how I got where I am. And later on, when we talk about, 
this concept of rebranding, uh, just listening to my career, you'll see that I did a lot of zigs and zags. Yeah. Um, and some of them I was in control of, and many of them I was not. And so you have to recognize that just because you got your AFSC this week, last week, odds are that's not what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. So quick question, uh, just out of my own curiosity, that kind of constant movement that you had mm-hmm. during your career in the military, what sort of effects did that have on your family, whether it was your wife or your son? It was tough. Um, first of all, uh, not to sound like I'm uh, too much of a planner, but uh, I knew when I was in college, uh, when I was dating girls, that the person that I was going to end up with had to be strong, mm-hmm. had to have her own thing. Uh, I remember when I gave my wife a promise ring, which meant we were going to get engaged. Her dad, who was a very big, imposing ex-World War II fighter pilot, brought me in his office and said, you know, what's a promise ring? And I said, well, sir, it means we're going to get engaged. And he said, well, no. And I said, well, sir, that is what it means. It means we're going to get engaged. He goes, no, it's not what it means. I said, okay, sir, what's it mean? He said, it means that my daughter's going to graduate from college or you and I are going to have a problem. And I said, sir, with all due respect, I think I want your daughter to be with me more than you do. And I want her to graduate more than you do. And he said, why? And I said, because I want her to be with me because she wants to be, not because she has to be. Mm. And I found that most of the relationships in the military were each person. Not, they don't have to both be in the military, but they both have something. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's a strong you know, commitment to the family. Maybe it's a desire to be a doctor, whatever it is. My wife's a, you know, a nurse practitioner, has her own practice. And I knew that she had her own thing, medicine. And I knew that was going to be important because I knew there were going to be months, if not you know, many months, that I was going to be deployed. And I knew she had to be strong. And strong doesn't mean it doesn't hurt. doesn't mean that, you know, I always, as I, I keep telling people about courage, it's a courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is still doing it even though you're scared to death. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I needed someone that had, was courageous, was strong. And so when I met her, it took about two months for me to go, that's the girl. Um, and we've been married 42 years now, so it worked. Um, a lot of people, it's tough. And I'll talk about later about the Pistons concept, about work-life balance when we get to that. Okay. And how about your, or your son? Uh, son, uh, he liked moving, believe it or not, uh, until he got to high school. Mm-hmm. And that was one of the reasons I chose to retire. Obviously, I was on track to get a star. Um, General Earhart was not happy with my decision to retire. <laughs> uh, but my wife had her own medical practice. It was the first time in her life that she was really happy because she was doing what she wanted to do and not following me around. Uh, my son, your son was a junior at Air Academy High School, and he didn't want to leave in his you know, junior year. And so for me, it was tough to make the decision to retire as a colonel. But part of it was my family had really sacrificed a lot, and I felt like it was their turn. Second of all, the odds of me flying again were pretty low. And I felt like if I'm going to fly a desk, I might as well do it someplace where I want to be. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I've just... No. Going to, it's tough. Going to yeah. school with a bunch of... I mean, I, I'm not a military brat, but a bunch no. of my classmates are, and I hear different things about... Absolutely. I, I loved it. I hated it. Right. And it depends. You know I mean? It depends on the location. My son loves Santa Monica. Not so much a fan of Utah because there were some things going on from a religious perspective. He, we weren't Mormons, and he took a lot of heat for that. Yeah. We didn't know that till he was 18, and uh, somebody called the house from Utah, and it was somebody he'd known in school, and before this person was going to go on their mission... They basically were required to sort of atone for to people that they had maybe been you know not nice to, and it really shocked my son to get a call from this guy who apparently wrote him pretty hard when they were back in sixth grade, hmm. and he called him up. My son went, "Oh, okay, you know," but he never told us that because this is my fault. I'd always told him, "Don't whine about problems, fix them, and if you're going to bring a problem to somebody, have some ideas on solutions." And he told me, "He said, Dad, what what were you going to do? Come to class and beat him up?" 
You know, were you going to, like, tell his parents? That wasn't going to make anything better. Mm-hmm. So he said, I decided I'd just suck it up, you know, and he did. But we didn't know that because he didn't tell us. Gotcha. That's interesting. Yeah. There's so many dynamics that just go Oh, and it's all about personality-based, you yeah. know. And he, I mean, when we lived in Santa Monica, we lived, uh, you know, on, right off Montana, which a couple blocks from the beach. And I remember when we were uh, getting into a place we were living, um, we walked by the school, and there were a bunch of kids out playing soccer. And he said, hey, I'm going to go play. I'm like, you don't even know. And he just walked on there, and I, he said, hey, I'm Ryan, and I'm new. I thought, okay. Now he's a high wealth manager for Fisher Investments, and that experience with different cultures hmm. and, and learning how to acclimate with new people is coming in handy in his job because he's dealing with people from Ohio to California. So it works out for him. That's interesting. To get into the questions, can you give a quick synopsis of what you do here in your position as the Anders Chair? Sure. So when I applied for this position only because a few people said, hey, you've always said you wanted to be a professor. And that's why I got my doctorate, because I felt like my rebranding, that my sort of my final job on this planet beyond just playing golf and, you know, watching Netflix was going to be uh, be a professor. Now, I didn't think it would be the Air Force Academy. I was thinking more like maybe University of Colorado, Colorado College, something like that. Um, but the person that uh, had this position before me, his wife was my wife's patient. Okay. And she had mentioned to her, my husband thinks that your husband would be good for this position because I was allowing cadets to come out to my company and let them sit through what we call a tech readiness review, which is also known as a murder board, where you essentially pitch your idea and you have people pretend they're the government and ask you really hard, niggly questions, and you try to rubber, you know, rubber uh, or iron brush them uh, so that when they go pitch to the client, it's a piece of cake because the client isn't mean, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I would let the cadets see that so they could see how ideas would start and morph and how they would turn into products and services. And so that's how the, I was even on the radar is he said, you know, hey, you seem to be engaged with the cadets. I know you're not a grad. Um, and I'm not even, I don't even have an economics degree. I mean, my MBA had a lot of economics, but my doctorate's in management, and my dissertation was about the culture of leadership development. Mm-hmm. But I'm convinced that being a good economist helps you make better decisions about resources, which is going to make you a better leader, so it all sort of ties together. But so when I agreed to, uh, you know, apply for this, my plan was I was the vice president and I, uh, for a large Fortune 500 company, and I ran their space and unmanned systems uh, business unit. And my decision was, you know what, I'm going to give back. I had 24 great years. The Air Force gave me opportunities I could have never imagined given where I came from. Um, and so I felt like it was time to give back. So I was going to do it for one year because they said it's a one-year gig, and that was nine years ago. <laughs> um, and after one year, I fell in love with the academy. I fell in love with the culture. I fell in love with the cadets. You guys are uh, you guys and gals, uh, you don't take anything for you know at face value. There's always a why, why, and I'm good with that. Um, and I, I guess, to be honest, uh, I got a kick out of being a small part of shaping the hearts and minds of what I believe will be our country's future leaders, not just necessarily in the military, but in anything you guys choose to do. So that kind of drew me into it, and I decided, you know, I think I want to keep doing this. And fortunately, they've allowed me to keep doing it, and I still enjoy it. Um, so Must be doing a good job then. I hope so, <laughs> I, or otherwise I think they would have kicked me out long ago. But um, without a doubt, I think, though, my greatest value has been my ability to take the different experiences I had as a military officer, um, as a person in industry who ran large programs, um, I, mean, I had 26 program managers uh, from Ramstein, Germany to Okinawa, and, it, and we had the GPS contract, the Cybers contract, the Milsatcom contract, and we had the contract there for special operations. We ran their entire ground operation for Reaper Predator operations. So satellite relay stations, ground control stations, op centers, that was all of my, all fell within my business unit. And so I loved that. Mm-hmm. I loved it. Um, but I felt like taking a year off would be great. 
and let me do that and, and, and give me an opportunity to engage with the cadets and, and, and maybe do something to give back. Um, but I just kind of fell in love with it and decided, you know, I think I'm going to keep doing this. Uh, so I had to tell my company, remember my one-year sabbatical, it's probably going to be more than that. And so fortunately, they hired me as a consultant, and that's how I started Paragon Consulting. And now I do consulting for a number of large Fortune 500 companies, some mediums, and I love doing the small companies. And the reason I do that is because it gives me great case studies that happened last week, not mm -hmm. 10 years ago. Because if I start with a case study more than five years, the cadets' eyes roll back in their head. They're like, dinosaur years, right? Um, so my value is taking that military, industrial, and my academic background and being able to develop you know, case studies and discussion points that are relevant. And the line that I always use is, and I, and I think, honestly, that trifecta of, of combining your, your military industry and academic experience is what, is what drives or change, makes the difference between uh, an endowed professor uh, that doesn't necessarily have to have all the credentials uh, and somebody who went bachelor's, master's, PhD. Mm -hmm. I'm just not a big fan of bachelor's, master's, PhD because you've had no life experience to filter that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember sitting through my MBA, which, you know, I w I'd been in the Air Force for eight years before I got that. And I remember listening to the instructor going, okay, that sounds good on paper, my friend. But I've lived enough life to know that's not what's ha happening out in the real world. And without that kind of experience, you're not going to have those filters. And the analogy I always use is you can read a book about being in love and, uh, and study it, but you don't know what you're talking mm. about until you've been in love. You have to experience it. You have to feel it, right? Yeah. And so I think that's my value is that those case studies that are relevant and current – are sticky, and it, it allows the cadets to remember the concepts and theories, not because of the concepts and theories, but the stories that they've been wrapped in, right? And it just makes it a little easier for them to, to digest that. So I kind of think that that has been my biggest value and one of the reasons that I enjoy doing this so much. My most, uh, the most of my time for preparing is looking for new case studies, but by working as a consultant, automatically Unlimited. case studies mm -hmm. they come at me like crazy and i'm like oh that's a good one or that's a bad one or this one's getting too old long in the tooth i gotta throw it out so most of the structure of the class doesn't change i just change out the case studies to make it more relevant okay do you think you could actually share one like a, a recent case study and oh. what you intend the cadets to take away from it absolutely so for example um i would i try to tell the cadets that uh it's not uncommon that you will find situations where people are being irrational and you're thinking, I don't understand why they don't see the obvious, right? Mm. So one of the examples is I was asked to go and mediate two vice presidents who were fighting like the Hatfield and McCoys uh, about how to work together on a going after a new contract. And it was obvious to everybody else that these two units, if they would work together, they could kill it, right? But they weren't. And so I was asked to go and mediate. And I remember on the flight out there, I was trying to think of all the business reasons of why this wasn't working out. And when I got there and met with the two leaders, plus they had the walls with their minions, they're basically task leads and engineers, I could tell within 15 minutes that these two men hated each other. <laughs> but the people behind the wall, the doers, the real workers, they wanted to engage. You could just see that they were frustrated. So I was frustrated. So I got up and I walked out to get a Coke. And I was standing by the Coke machine, and a young engineer walked up to me and said, you don't know what's going on, do you? And I said, yeah, these two guys don't like each other. He goes, yeah, but you think it's a business reason? Because I'm thinking, oh, I get it. It's a rice bowl issue. It's a, you know, who's going to get credit issue. Mm. Mm. That's not what it was. Vice President A had had an affair with Vice President B's wife. 
that was the problem. Hmm. I would have never figured that out in a million years because you don't read that in a Harvard Business Review, right, for a case study. Yeah. So I went, you've got to be kidding me. So I talked to the two guys, and it's pretty obvious to tell who was A and who was B, right, who was the most angry. And I said, look, you have to compartmentalize. I went on combat missions, and my kid was sick back at home, but I had to compartmentalize. I had to be able to focus on my mission. You need to do that right now. Focus on the mission and unleash your people so they can get the job done. And I said, and whoever, the two of you that are not going to do that, I'm going to fire one of you. And they're like, you can't do that. Well, I'd already gotten permission from the CEO to fire one of them. And so we got them. I said, you get 15 minutes with each of your groups. You let them know the war is over and that they can talk. We got back in the main room, and everything was fine. Two guys didn't talk very much, but the people that needed to talk did. They felt like they'd been unleashed. And that's an example of using emotional intelligence, which I didn't have for that scenario. Mm. Thank God somebody came up and told me that. But I must have struck a chord that I was trying, right? Mm -hmm. And that person told me what was happening, and I was able to come up with a solution to get us to move forward. And that was not easy to do because I don't care. I mean, it doesn't affect me emotionally at all. And that's the hardest thing for a leader is to recognize that you're going to face all these scenarios in your life. And you're not going to have any emotional reaction because it didn't happen to you. Mm-hmm. But you're going to be dealing with people that have visceral re- reactions because it, it's it's an emotional impact for them. So that's an example where I had to try to fix something. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of those throughout my career. But that was one that was kind of interesting because it was not the standard Harvard Business Review case study of, you know, some business reason why this wasn't working. And all you got to do is, you know, change the denominator and it'll work. You know, it was, it was people being irrational. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was reading um – Freakonomics and actually part of Naked Economics, uh-huh. they talk about this idea of rational actors versus like a lot of um, economics models assume rational actors. Correct, but it well, is so far be, from that's the considered truth. to be a benchmark, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, you know there are people. There's what, for example, when they did studies of, of attractiveness, they found that symmetry was the most common attribute. Mm. Ethnicity, gender didn't matter with symmetry, right? Okay, so I know that I'm very far from perfection when it comes to attractiveness, right? So uh, when you look at economics, we look at that that rational person actor as being the benchmark. And now let's figure out how far away from that benchmark. It's like the perfect competition model. It doesn't exist in the real world, but we can figure out how far away you are from that. Mm-hmm. Having said that, that's one of the reasons I was so interested in behavioral economics, because mm-hmm. behavioral economics lets you identify how far away from the benchmarks they're going to get and forecast it to actually decide what are they about to do in advance. And that to me was interesting because it gave me something to work with as opposed to reacting all the time. Yeah. Uh, That's why I wanted to pull on that string of behavioral economics because in that, in those passages I read, they started to bring in the fact that economics as it, as it is, doesn't make conclusive or no. uh, effective no. results. I mean, you really can, need that human component. But I think the place where economics can break down sometimes is when, when people look at economics, first of all, they'll say it's about money. Okay, well, money is a resource, right? There are lots of uh, what I call intangible resources like, I don't know, let's say the motivation or the morale of your unit. Uh, the effectiveness level of your unit, you know, your training effectiveness. You can measure those things, but a lot of times they're qualitative, right? Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that I pound very hard in my classes is that, yes, you're going to collect data, and yes, you're going to do a bunch of, you know, statistical analysis, and you're going to do, you know, econometrics, and all. you might do any of that. But in reality, the really hard problems, there is no data, and there's no time to collect it. You're going to have to go out and pull it from subject matter experts' brain. You're like a collage. You're going to get bits and pieces and pull it together and go, oh, and you've got your puzzle now, right? And that qualitative research is hard because you have to reach out to people you don't know 
sometimes you don't even like them. And you got to reach out and try to pull that information from their craniums. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's hard to do because most people are fearful of talking to people they don't know about subjects they're not confident about. But that's the whole reason you got to talk to them, right? Because that's why they're subject matter experts. And I would say out of all my classes, the thing that I hear continuously is the thing they hate the most is that I force them, make a requirement that they reach out and tell me who they reached out to so I can verify at least two or three subject matter experts outside the academy. And invariably, they're like, well, I don't know anybody. I'm like, hey, we're all related to Kevin Bacon, right? Six degrees (laughs) of separation. So your aunt might know somebody who knows somebody who happens to work at Lockheed, and that may not be the right person to talk to, but they're inside the tent, and they can look at the global access list and go, oh, you need to talk to Bill, Mm -hmm. and then do an introduction for you, because if you just do a cold call or a cold email, most people are going to delete because they think it's, you know, spam or phishing. But if you can get somebody inside the tent to introduce you electronically, much higher probability. But even then, it cracks me up how many people, if I told you you're going to go to a meeting like this face-to-face, you would probably prepare differently than if I told you you were going to make a phone call. Mm-hmm. But you shouldn't. It's still a meeting. And so I, I, a lot of the times they meet them on MS Teams or whatever. I said, look, you need to prepare for that telephone call as thoroughly as you would if you were going to go meet them face-to-face because you want to think about what are my top questions, what order do I want to ask them in. you got to be prepared to stop from going down rabbit holes. You know, they start going, oh, we, that's interesting, but let's get back to the main questions. Because you only have 30 minutes or maybe an hour with these people. You don't want to waste time. Mm-hmm. So that, that learning how to do qualitative research uh, for economic assessments is probably the hardest thing that I'm trying to push onto the cadets in all the classes that I teach. Because I do both Econ 423, which is for the management majors for, for the most part, all seniors, and then I teach the defense economics course to the econ majors in the spring. Okay. So I kind of get to reach, touch both of the uh, majors. That's interesting. Uh, I got to drop this here because uh, I think the podcast has done a, a good job of teaching me some similar values of, because, I mean, a big reason why we got in touch was because uh, probably two semesters ago now, um, I interviewed General Jack Catton, and right. he said he had met you at the Space Symposium, Correct. and then I ran into him, and I'm like, holy crap, small, small world, world but small world. it helped me get in Six touch with you. Six degrees of separation. You'll mm-hmm. be shocked at who you know. I had one set of cadets who said that uh, they couldn't find somebody at SpaceX. They just couldn't. And I went on LinkedIn, the director of operations at SpaceX is an academy grad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's like, you know him. Yeah. That's one thing that I try to tell uh, my, my classmates, because... I've had a little bit of a success on my own is that if Absolutely. you have a LinkedIn account and you say that you're from the academy, almost every academy grad is going to be willing to help you. And even if they're not academy grad, you're going to have a level of street cred that, you know, that, okay, I'm going to talk to this person. That doesn't mean that everybody who goes to the academy is perfection, but it's just, it's going to give you an entree. Mm. And then, and maybe, and, and a lot of times you'll meet with a subject matter expert and within five minutes, you're like, this is not the right person. I'm going to be polite, professional, but what I'm going to focus on is, can you introduce me to the right person? Mm-hmm. You know, if it's not you, because you'll get people to give you the Heisman, right? I can't tell you it's classified, <laughs> double secret probation, whatever. And they're just not going to talk to you, right? Because they're afraid of getting in trouble, whatever. So you say, well, if not you, then who, right? And then my favorite last question always is, is there something that I didn't ask that you thought I should or would? And invariably, every once in a while, you know, I'll get surprised. 90% of the time, well, no, you got it. But every once in a while, I'll get, the, oh, you're absolutely right. Not even on my radar very interesting question. Can you answer it now that you've pointed it out? Mm. Um, and therefore, there, I won't leave that meeting with them thinking, boy, that guy didn't even ask the most important question there is. And you're like, okay, well, tell me what that is. <laughs> but dealing with humans and doing qualitative research is hard, right? And so that's why I push it so hard. Mm. So we're, we kind of discussed some factors that go into the defense economics and specifically acquisitions right. process. 
Another thing that I think you hone in on is the importance of operators um, versus just acquisitions officers and being engaged in requirements, derivation, and acquisition process. Right. Do you think you could dive into that for us? So first of all, I have to tell, look, 60% of econ majors end up becoming pilots, right? That's Mm kind of how it works. The other 40%, a good chunk of them become acquisition officers, which may not be the thing that they want to do for the rest of their life. And we'll talk about later about rebranding. And so don't worry about it. It probably won't be the thing you do for the rest of your life. But the goal here was not to uh, just reinforce acquisition officers, which I'm glad I can. In fact, a lot of cadets who've taken my class who then went on to become acquisition officers, I get emails saying, sir, man, I was the only one in the room that knew how this worked. I actually understood it, and it made it easier for me to absorb the information and to be better at my job. Yay. But my real target is the operators. And when I say operators, and I'm just talking pilots, I'm talking you know, hospital, medical, in, intel, logistics, supply, you, know, you name it, right? Mm-hmm. Space Force, it doesn't matter. The goal was that too many operators are fearful of engaging in the acquisition process as subject matter experts because they're afraid of getting in trouble. You know, breaking a law, you know, violating the federal acquisition regulations or something like that. So they they kind of stand back and they let the the acquisition system happen to them. Mm. And then they complain about whatever it is gets delivered to them that isn't anything that they asked for. So I said, look, you have to have the courage to engage in the process, to be on a source selection team, uh, to be part of writing an R- a request for proposal that specifies exactly what you want this thing to be able to do. What are the requirements? You can't let people who have never done the mission be the only people making that, that call. So I found the only way to get past that fear is to have some knowledge that it's not black magic. It's not smoke and mirrors. It's knowable. You don't have to be an expert. You just need to know enough to be able to be courageous enough to go, hey, I have an input. And I'm not going to just sit here like a bump on a log because I'm afraid of getting in trouble, right? So my goal has been to give them that confidence to go, you can do this. You just need to understand it. Um, and some cadets fight it, and they're like, oh, no, so I'm never going to do this. Like, you will. You might be a lieutenant get pulled on a source selection team. You're like, what am I doing here? Now, they'll give you instructions. But if you've had my class and you understand how the game is played, you're going to be in a much better position. And I'm telling you what, I didn't get any of this which is why I was so adamant about saying, yes, I will do this, because I was put into situations in my career where I had no idea how the game was played. And the old adage is, if you don't know how the game is played, you're going to get played. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was always at a disadvantage because I just didn't understand the game. I mean, simple things like, you know, the palm for the services, that's going to be pretty much done in August. So if you come up with an awesome idea in September and it hasn't been put into the budget, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. Unless it's so critical and so earth-shattering that they decide to upend the whole timeline and stick your thing in there. Otherwise, it's just not going to happen until next year. But even being aware of, wow, if I have a good idea, I need to get it into the, into the pipeline so that it can be part of the POM process that will get pretty much finalized in August. Otherwise, it's going to get kicked to next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, that Even that little piece of knowledge helps me as an operator know, okay, that's what I need to do. Um, so that's why I push that so hard. Um, so my prime directive is to try to increase situational awareness and understanding of how the game is played to give people the courage to recognize it. I, I can be a part of this. And as an operator, I need to be a part of it. I have to be a part of it. Um, and I operationalize that goal both in the Econ 423, which is managerial economics, and Econ 480, which is the defense economics, which is for econ majors. I operationalize it mostly by putting people into teams, and then they have to do presentations for case studies. So for in both classes, they have to do case studies where they do an economic assessment of a large defense firm. 
uh, you know, Lockheed, Boeing, whatever. And then the econ majors have to do a second project, which is to look at a defense issue. And it might be the pilot training issue. It might be space acquisition. It might be, uh, you know, many and few versus or, or few and exquisite versus swarm warfare. You know, Th- those are all going to be resource decisions. Heck, the budget drill we're going through right now mm-hmm. is an example of a resource issue, right? About having a different opinion of where the money should go. It's all about resources, right? So I try to do that and put them into those case studies so they have to work as a team because the days of working as an individual are over. And I don't do final exams because the days of taking final exams are over. You're going to go out and work on teams with people you don't know, people you didn't get to select, people you don't even like, and you still have to kill it. You don't get to suck because you don't like somebody. Mm-hmm. You're going to work on projects. You don't like the people. You don't like the person you're working for. You don't like the topic, and nobody cares. Still got to kill it, right? Excellence in all we do, no matter what. And so that's why I put them in the teams to get them used to that. Because otherwise, you know, you get the Lone Rangers that go out there and say, I'll just do it by myself. And I'm like, that's nah, not going to work. It's just not going to work. Um, so, and I found that by doing those case studies and doing presentations instead of taking a final exam, they have to work on their oral skills. You're going to have to learn how to pitch ideas in an elevator, at a bar, in the back of a car, standing at a urinal, whatever, right? <laughs> you got to learn how to do a 30-second elevator speech and pitch ideas because that's what your life is going to look like, especially if you get out of the Air Force. So I think I'm trying to give them lessons in actually having life skills that are going to be useful for them when they get out. Okay. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying the episode. I just wanted to take a second to tell you about my good friend I grew up playing hockey with. His name's Jake Tebow. During my freshman year parents weekend, I was notified that Jake got into a severe hockey accident where he was paralyzed from the waist down with little hopes of walking again. Through the help of many generous people and a no quit attitude, he's been able to make great progress, but he still needs your help. If you want to check out his story and donate, his website is tbo14tough.com. That's T-B-O, the number 14tough.com. Or check out his Instagram, jake.tebow, to support his progress. Thanks. This means an absolute ton. Now back to the episode. Do you think that there's some sort of uh, misallocation of resources or something wrong with the system that the reason... Like, this is such a big issue because there's people downrange that are working with things that don't work optimally. Correct. And it's largely as a result of, like you said, operators being afraid of the acquisitions process. Do you think the system's messed up? I don't want to say it's messed up, but it certainly needs to be changed. If you look at the acquisition framework, there are multiple pathways, right? So for the large, super expensive, a lot of resources, highly impactful to the nation, you know, those things are going to take a little more time because it's a lot of resources. Mm-hmm. For things that are sm- faster and, you know, we need them now, like uh, the warfighter's common refrain is, I want good enough now versus perfect late. Um, and so what that means is we have to accept a little risk. And so, for example, I would argue in the space community before we had Space Force, uh, I, would, I believe that most of the people in the space community were in an environment where they were led to be relatively risk-averse because, let's face it, everything they did had global implications. You know, if there's a satellite issue or something, you know, some sort of debris field or whatever, that's going to show up on the news, right? Mm-hmm. And that debris field is not going to sit in one place. It's probably going to affect all kinds of things. So I get that there was a reason to be risk-averse a little bit, right? Especially when you have a very small number of exquisite, super expensive satellites up there that you got to be careful with. 
But now we're moving more toward a swarm mindset where you have proliferated space, you know, where there's, you know, I think Be uh, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk are planning on launching around 6,000 satellites each to create essentially a global network where you have Wi-Fi everywhere. Mm -hmm. You could order a new set of boots on the Serengeti and they would drop it to you with a drone, <laughs> right? I mean, that's what they really want to get to. Um, so I get that, but I would argue that because of that fear of risk, that we became risk, uh, uh, we not, not only risk averse, but trying to completely get rid of all risk, and that's impossible. So if you want high rewards, you gotta take some risk. And I think our system needs to accept failure. So good example, um, uh, one of the programs that was under me was we had a cadre of really smart old guys that were really smart about space operations. It might be launch, it might be you know uh, logistics, whatever. Um, but they were all experts in those fields. And literally every launch that went up, there'd be a thumbs up or a thumbs down from these guys, just like the old you know NASA movies, yeah. you know Capcom, Capcom, whatever. And if any if it was all thumbs up, launch goes as good, right? If there was a thumbs down, let's okay, let's wait a minute, let's figure out what's going on. We went to go brief SpaceX, my company. I took a team there with the program manager to brief SpaceX because we thought, hey, we prevent things from blowing up on the, on the launch pad. Maybe SpaceX could find value in us doing the same for them. And within five minutes, I could tell there was zero reception. I mean, my program manager was giving a great pitch, but everybody had arms crossed, rolling their eyes, looking around. I'm like, okay, we stop right here. I said, uh, is something wrong? They said, you guys come from a different culture. You're risk averse. We're okay with risk. Pushing boundaries and blowing things up is okay because that's how we find the boundaries. So we have no issue with stuff blowing out on the line. As long as there's not a human being on board, we're going to blow stuff up. Mm. And I thought, you know, you're right. Because we're in such a risk of, we don't want anything to go wrong. We don't want to have a, a CNN moment, you know, something blowing up. And they're like, we don't care. Very different mindset. And that's where space is going. I think the rest of the acquisition will get dragged along with it. But I guarantee you, you know, F-35s and building a new class of, you know, aircraft carrier will not be a fast process. Yeah. It's just too much money and too many resources. That's an interesting culture difference. Very big culture difference. I mean, and mostly young space leaders are looking at, they prefer smaller companies. They have the Catalyst Campus, which is in downtown Colorado Springs, which is an incubator for small businesses. A, a company that was very successful here in, in town, um, uh, Bluestack. They were there, and now they've you know grown, and, and they're doing space situation awareness with the data library and everything. Um, it was just two or three guys that started that. Um, and, but the space catalyst, that catalyst campus is where they got started. They gave them a little office. You need a conference room you can borrow for an hour. So they had very low cost. They had a lot of mentors to help them understand how to run their business from you know economics and accounting. Mm -hmm. That's where I think people want to see these ideas coming from. And I don't want to, you know, shove out Lockheed and Boeing and Northrop Grumman because they've got a lot of great ideas too, but they're not the only source. And by expanding, you know, the, the spectrum from large to even little tiny two-person company, that's what's going to get us the best ideas. Mm -hmm. That was something that was interesting about walking around at the Space Symposium is that they have this huge uh, setup at the Broadmoor where they have Probably thousands of companies that are just uh, right. showing off their tiny little right. valve gauge or something yep. that'll go on some sort of spacecraft. And, and you know, it's hard to quantify how much that you know how much you get in re you know return on investment. Uh, you know, you spend fifty, sixty, seventy-five thousand dollars for a booth. You're like, am I going to win a contract from that? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But as people have said, if you're not at the table, you're not at the table, right? Mm -hmm. And so the idea that yeah, I'm not sure whether having this booth is going to make a difference, but it might. And I know if I don't go, it'll definitely not have an impact. So that's kind of why it works. Mm -hmm. 
Are there any uh, common traps similar to just being afraid as an operator or acquisitions personnel? Are there any common traps that they usually fall into? Yeah. So first of all, losing sight of the mission. Uh, and that's where you allow yourself to get so wrapped up in the process that you forget why you're doing it in the first place mm. and just completely lose track of, oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we're meeting all the milestones and, you know, the process, but you're not actually solving the problem, right? And so you lose track of the mission. And I think in that case, you're focusing so much on the how, the process, that you lose track of the why. Why are we doing this in the first place? Um, and that's one of the first issues I see with some people that get so, because, I mean, it's like making donuts, man. I got to make the donuts, man. I got to make the I got to get these things out because it's not just one acquisition. There's a ton of them. And some are bigger, some are small. And you're just trying to keep the donuts going across and not do the, I don't know if you've seen I Love Lucy with the candy. No. Where she's, you know, she's trying to put it in a box and she can't get it. So she starts eating it, you know, because she can't get the box. So it is a difficult process. So, but you, you've got to stay on board and never forget that we're doing this for a reason. There's a why, right? Um, and so I always tell people that's what leaders focus on. Leaders focus on why, not just how and what. Um, the risk aversion part, I told you, is hard uh, because nobody wants to have a failure on their watch. But if you also want to hit a home run, you got to swing, right? Mm. And, you know, Babe Ruth had the highest home run average, but he also had the highest strikeout average, right? And Google has a wonderful policy where if you volunteer to take on a really tough task, could be a task lead, really pushing the boundaries, and you fail, but they determine that you gave it the best shot possible. It just isn't possible right now. They'll promote you, even if you failed, because they want to attract good people, and good people are not going to volunteer to take on losing propositions and then get fired. So they tried to create this incentive of, yes, step up, mm -hmm. take risk, and even if you fail, as long as we feel like you gave it the right shot, you're going to keep getting promoted. So I think that's a great way of doing it. Um, and then I think the other thing is, not leveraging the defense industrial base as a partner. A lot of people in the acquisition community look at the defense contractors as slime balls that are trying to rip them off, right? And they're just, most of them are retired military people that are just trying to stay engaged and continue to serve their country. Are there slime balls in the, in the defense industry? Yes. Are there slime balls in uniform? Yes, right? It's, it's true, right? I get that. But you need to look out for them because if they have some great ideas and if you treat them like the adversary and you know, hold your cards very tight to your chest, you could flip your cards around and go, hey, this is what I have. What do you have? Let's see if we can get a royal flush, right? Mm -hmm. But acquisition time, they don't do that sometimes. They feel like, and I know there's rules you know, about what you can let, you know, and timing, you know, before the RP, after all that. I get all that. But if you look at the industry and be able to pick up a phone and call somebody that works at Lockheed and go, what do you think about this? Now, they do RFI, so there's a formal process. But you ought to be able to look at them and not feel like they're adversaries. You ought to look at them as partners in trying to defend and support our country. And I think that's another pitfall that I see. Okay. Um, like, I'm going to uh, point this back at you. Are there any questions about the defense acquisitions uh, process that I haven't asked that you think should be answered? Um, only in the sense that um, if you do go into acquisitions, you know, it's not a death sentence. Um, and some people get all for, ah, oh, you know, I want to be an operator. It's like, yeah, but you're going to be part of deciding what the operators get to use. And it probably won't be your entire career that you'll be in equity. It might be if you like it, but if there's a way to, you know, take a left turn or a right turn, there's opportunities to do that. But you should revel in being a part of the process, whether you're an acquisition officer or an operator, because this country has a huge defense budget and we get to make a lot of cool things because the goal of America is never to fight a fair fight. Mm -hmm. I don't want a fair fight. 
I want it to be so overwhelmingly lopsided that you are deterred from even considering going against us, right? That's perfection, right? I'm not looking to be equal with the Chinese or equal with the Russians, right? Um, so that was about the only question is making sure that people understand you should revel in being a part of that process. Okay. I've actually never uh, seen an acquisitions officer upset on job drop day. Right. But uh, maybe they're just holding it in. Maybe it's the well, equivalent and, you know, to missiles. And, and, but, you know, they're not going to necessarily like it because I'm going to get rich, right? Or I'm on my pathway to be in the defense industry. That mm-hmm. could all be true, right? Yeah. Or they might get in there and just say, I want to kill myself because <laughs> I can't stand this, right? Um, but I think that... Um, no matter what job you get into, and this kind of goes into, you know, some ideas about, you know, being a cadet in the next, uh, your next life, and that is this concept of evolutionary rebranding, that no matter what your AFSC was, uh, you're not going to keep doing that for the rest of your life. And I think I've told you before, what percentage of cadets actually stay into 20 years? Mm. What do you think? Probably about 50. It's 18%. Wow. That's all. So, I mean, it goes 19, 20, but it's around 18 to 20. So, you know, you have an 80% chance you're going to do something different. Um, And therefore, you get to rebrand yourself. Uh, Maybe you go run your family farm. Maybe you go, there's one grad who went out and started a vineyard in Napa. I mean, whatever the heck you want to do, right? This is your opportunity. So I tell people, when you do leave the Air Force, this is the first time in your life, in your adult life, where you get to do what you want to do. Now, you might have bills and a mortgage on it, and you, so you got to be careful. But, you know, don't just follow the lemmings, right? Don't just do whatever everybody else does. I mean, when I was a captain, every pilot I knew was going to the airlines, mm-hmm. every one of them. And I thought, I don't know, something inside me, I don't know, man. I don't think I want to do that. And it was just me. You know, I'm not downgrading the thing. I just didn't want to do it. And so I spent two weeks Remember I told you, find somebody who's doing, you know, a mentor. Well, if you can find somebody who's maybe five years ahead of you and find out that's doing something you think you might want to do, go talk to them. And the two questions you want to ask them is, you know, tell me what the job's really like. For example, is there a lot of travel? Is it just nothing but, you know, mind-numbing meetings or whatever, right? Um, And the second thing is, how do I get there? So, for example, a lot of people say, oh, I'm going to work my way up. But if you talk to somebody, they go, hey, in the history of this position, nobody's ever worked their way up then that's not a pathway, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I hung out with airline pilots that were guard pilots in Tucson two weekends in a row. And at the end of those two weekends, I found that I had not found a single person that loved being an airline pilot. Didn't hate it. They liked it, but not loved it. Very few, at least when I went to talk to them. And I said, well, why don't you love it? And they said, well, it's not a meritocracy. It's a union job. You get a line number. The guy that's next to you in the left seat is a captain, not because he's a better pilot than you, but it's because they've been there longer. Mm-hmm. And the other things they said was that as you change equipment, now if you're at Southwest and you stay in the 737 your whole life, that's fine. But if you're at United Airlines, you're going to be sawtoothing through, you know, first officer, then captain, first officer, then captain. And so you're going to be changing your seniority and your ability to bid lines and, you know, not have to work weekends and fly the, you know, the, the, late, the uh, red eyes. They said, that's a piece of cake when you're young, but when you become 50, it starts to get harder. And so I said, you know, I just don't think this is for me. And I'd been the demo pilot flying the A-10, so I went on 34 air shows in one year and woke up in the middle of the night bumping into walls trying to find the bathroom, and I didn't <laughs> like that. You know, so I just, for me, it wasn't right, but everybody I knew was doing that. So I, I had to fight the rebranding. I'm going to be an airline pilot. Say, no, I'm going to stay in. And then eventually my career took me off out of the flying community and doing other things. And so you, you will constantly rebrand yourself, and hopefully you'll rebrand it in a way that is comfortable for you, right? So, for example, when I was a squadron commander, I wasn't flying as much as I used to. So I went from being a captain and a major who was flying all the time, and I would go up flying with the attitude of, I'm going to kick butt and take names today. 
when I became a squadron commander and I was only flying maybe once, twice a week if I was lucky, I was still had proficiency, but my attitude changed to don't screw up. Mm. It's like being a college football player that you're getting, you love being in the college. Now you go to the NFL and every game, what have you done for me lately? And you'll get cut like that. And it's a different motivation, right? And so that kind of changed the way I felt. And so when I was in positions where I wasn't flying, as much as I didn't like, you know, not, I, as much as I missed flying, I enjoyed leading people. And I found that there were so many people that didn't understand the difference between being a leader and being a manager. And I said, you know, a manager is going to make sure you're doing things right, following procedures, following the rules, following the process, right? A leader is going to make sure you're doing the right things. So a manager is going to make the trains run on time, and a leader is going to ask, should we be in the train business? Very different brain muscles, right? Mm -hmm. A manager is going to focus on how, and a leader is going to focus on why. You know, how do I motivate my people to want to do this so they understand the why? Man, if you're working as a squadron commander and you can't motivate your people, you're dumber in a bag of rocks because you're doing cool things, right? But if you're like managing a Dunkin' Donuts, how do you keep people fired up? Mm -hmm. How do you get them to go, oh, I'm making donuts to make people want to get up in the morning. I'm making donuts to make people smile because they're getting a sugar rush or whatever, right? you got to start focusing on the why because if you keep focusing on making the donuts every morning, you're going to get burned out. So I tell people, focus on being a good leader. And the best thing about being a good leader is that nobody coming out of college is going to compete with you. Young kids that have just spent the last four years studying the newest, coolest stuff, they're always going to com be competing with people in the technical field. And most people that graduate don't stay up to date with the newest things. They come home, they get a beer, they got life, they don't go back to school, and eventually these young kids come out and go, hey, I'll work for a lot less money because it's better than paying the Taco Bell, and that depresses your salary. But if your value is because of your leadership skills, I'm sorry. The average kid out of college is not going to compete with you, and most colleges don't teach leadership. Only the academies really focus on it, which out of all the stuff you learn at the academy, learning how to be a good leader, I know people, you know, tongue-in-cheek, leaders of character, but it's true because we don't need more academics that can't lead their way out of a paper bag. Mm -hmm. We need leaders that have a strong academic background and have credentials because people in D.C. like that, but we need leaders. We just don't have enough. Um, so anyway, so I tell people to make sure you focus on being a good leader and knowing what that means. And that means you've got to be inspirational, you've got to be motivational, and you yourself have to be convinced of the why of what you're doing. Um, and one of the ways that you can shape that rebranding, I think, is to figure out what you think your hidden talents might be. And that's where that Strength Finders 2.0 comes in. Okay. Um, it's a test you can buy for $21 on Amazon. It's web-based. When I took it, it was a bubble sheet. Created by the Gallup organization, they're very smart when it comes to taking, te uh, taking surveys. And essentially, the whole premise is that we all have hidden talents. Some of them you're aware of. Most of them you're not. And this test will ask you a lot of questions from a lot of different angles, and it's timed. They want you thinking about it. First thing that comes to your head, system one thinking, rapid cognition. And it's not a vocational test. It doesn't pop out and say you should be a plumber, right? <laughs> it comes out and says these are probably your top five themes. Maybe you're a leader. Maybe you are uh, like dealing with people, whatever. Maybe you're into sales, whatever. It'll tell you these five themes, and it'll say these things are likely your hidden talents. And when you see those list of five things, some of them you might go, oh, I knew that. But many people are going to go, wow, I wasn't consciously aware of that, but now that I think about it, hmm. Maybe I am. And then it gives you examples of things you can do to turn those talents into strengths based on those themes. And the theory is, let's say you're the best basketball player the world's ever known. That's your hidden talent. 
But if you or somebody else doesn't throw you a ball and have you shoot through hoops and start practicing, it'll never be a strength. Mm-hmm. It'll just stay a hidden talent. And so if you're trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life, take strength finders. Uh, you know, my son took it. It helped him. Uh, you know, he finally, based on the five themes, said, you know, I think I'm going to be in finance and marketing. And that meant he went toward Fisher Investments, and he's a high wealth manager now, and he loves it. He was an engineer at the time. And he said, I just don't, I don't like it, Dad. And I'm like, well, then don't do it. You know, you're good at math and science, but you just don't like it, then don't do it. I'm not saying you got to love everything, but he just hated it. And I said, okay, tank strike finders, and it changed his life. So, and it's 21 bucks. And if you don't like it, it's 21 bucks, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but you'll be surprised, I think, by some of the themes that it comes out with. So the themes that it, it pr- uh, proposes to you, does it also have like a corresponding matching thing where it's like, okay, these themes go so well it says, with here's these your jobs? Theme. No, it does not do that. It does not map to jobs. But it'll say, here are some things that, here's your theme. And it'll say, here are some things you can do to turn that hidden talent, that theme, into a strength. Now, you have to do some interpretation of your own and say, based on those talents and then turning those things into strengths, where am I most likely to be successful? Um, you know, for example, uh, I tell people, uh, you know, you need to know what your company really does if you want to be successful there. So, for example, if you're working at McDonald's and you want to be in the C-suite of McDonald's, being there has nothing to do with running a restaurant or even logistics. It has everything to do with commercial real estate. Mm-hmm. McDonald's makes most of their profit by releasing space to franchisees who have to pay them every month whether they sell one burger or a thousand. Don't get me wrong. They make money off of selling you burgers and french fries. But that sales, the leasing of commercial real estate, that's the daddy rabbit. And so if you want to be successful at McDonald's, you better be good at that, right? Um, so understanding what it is your company does is helpful. So understanding what you're good at will help you make choices about Maybe I should think about doing this. So my son and I looked at his results, and collectively he said maybe finance and marketing because it talked about his skill sets and sales and stuff like that. But it doesn't go and tell you you should be a plumber or you should be a lawyer. It doesn't do that at all. Mm. So two things. For your specific um, situation when you were going into rebrand yourself, uh-huh. you mentioned that you were focusing on leadership right. rather than – the technical or tactical right. which is why I love being at the Pentagon so much you yeah. know people are like how could you like the Pentagon and go I enjoyed it it was like a chess game with people I like that it was different than flying but I found that I was good at that and I liked it mm-hmm. so where did you map leadership to and if you could connect it to the concept of um, job versus ge- uh, geography spectrum well first of all uh, I'm a big believer in having a what I call a fierce conversation you talk about books you should read one of them is called fierce conversations uh, writ- uh, written by a woman who was an executive coach. And it's not about having mean conversations. You know, when you hear fierce, you think it's mean. It's about having meaningful conversations, meaning having the courage to have a tough conversation with yourself and with others. Uh, especially, for example, if you're a, uh, someone who got promoted and all the people that were your buds and your peers, you're now their boss. But you still want to be their friend. And it's really hard. And if you got a guy or a gal that's your best friend and they're not doing a good job, you're fearful of having a conversation of telling them that, that they suck and, they, and giving them some things they need to do. And that fierce conversation is kind of important. But if you have this fierce conversation with yourself, looking in the mirror and say, what is important to me? Not what everybody else is doing. Everybody else is going to the airlines, but I don't think that's for me. Um, everybody, my parents think I should do this or my spouse thinks I should. What is it in your heart that you'd believe to be true? And one of the first things is, are you a job person or a geography person? A job person will do it in hell (laughs) as long as they get to do what they like to do. A geography person will shovel crap 
for a living as long as they get to be in the right place. So if you decide that surfing and hanging out on the beach is all you want to do, you can do that. But you're a geography person, which is going to severely limit your jobs, might make you live in a you know one-room apartment, You know your life's going to be different. But you need to decide which is more important. On the other hand, if you decide, man, I want to be the CEO of that company, recognize that's going to cost. For example, a CEO of a company, there's no personal and professional life. It's your life. Mm-hmm. 24-7, you're the CEO. You're going to lunches and dinners and flying places. There is no separation between personal and professional. It's all Same with generals. General officers, it's really hard for them to separate because they're on call 24-7. They're on, they're on, you know, the superintendent, he's on at the weekend at the Blue and Silver Club. I mean, it just never ends. So there's a cost to that. And you just need to make sure that you're willing to pay that price. I've had people go, you know, I want to move to Colorado Springs because I want a better lifestyle. I want a you know, safer environment for my kids. But I want to make, I want to do the same kind of job there. And I want to get paid the same amount of money that I'm getting in D.C. And I'm like, not going to happen. It's Colorado Springs. Not as many jobs out here, certainly not higher jobs. And the pay's good, but it's not compared to D.C. But then the cost of living's cheaper, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you want to be a geography person, you want to live in Colorado Springs, you're going to have to suboptimize your job. And that's okay as long as you go into it with your eyes wide open and know what's important to you. For me, retiring as a colonel, tough decision. Not as tough as I thought. It took me about six months to get over it. Um, most thing I noticed is, man, I'm not getting a bunch of emails and much phone calls. This is kind of cool. You know? <laughs> but it was hard. Because, you know, you're on this trajectory and you feel like, okay, what am I going to do? And say, like, okay, I'm going to pivot, rebrand myself as a defense guy, and I'm going to continue on my trajectory only outside of the uniform, right? So that was kind of important. So that job geography thing, it just forces you to have a fierce conversation with yourself and with your family. A lot of people don't have their, their spouse in that conversation. They have to. They have to know. I mean, you got a special needs kid, geography. I got to be in a place where they can get the right care, the right schools. That's going to drive your entire fight. And you can't wallow in that. You got to go, this is what works for me, meaning I'm going to suboptimize my job probably. And it's worth it. So you got to understand that. The other thing that I tell people is work life balance is a myth. Jeff Bezos, when he first started Amazon, had his first town hall meeting. And there's a book, if you're asking for recommended books, it's called All In. And it talks about Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, and the guy that started Uber, and I can't think of his name right now. But the point of the book is that those people were obsessed. And they wanted everybody who worked with them to be obsessed. But the best they can get is passionate. Mm-hmm. And they should be okay with that. And you'll find many times, you know, there's people that are super obsessed because it's their idea and they're running it. And they're looking for everybody else to be obsessed. It's not realistic. But has Elon, or I'm sorry, uh, Jeff Bezos' first town hall meeting, somebody raised their hand and said, man, we're working our butts off. It's really hard to have a work-life balance here. And Bezos, without even hesitating, said, only people that complain about work-life balance are people that don't like their job. So maybe you should get a different job. Now, I don't know that I agree with that completely, but I also don't believe that life is a teeter-totter, that I can put little weights on and keep this perfect little balance between my personal and professional life all the time. And that is impossible. So I came up with the piston concept, which is you have a personal professional piston that are next to each other. And sometimes you're going to optimize the professional and suboptimize your personal. Uh, you know, your job's important. You're in combat. Lives are at stake. Stuff that's going on at home just is going to get suboptimized. And you're going to feel like crap because you just made a trade-off. And you're going to think, I'm a terrible father. I'm a terrible husband, whatever. And then all of a sudden, the personal piston's going to jump up because your kid gets sick or your, you know, your parents get sick and all of a sudden you're going to probably not be at the job like you'd like to be you maybe aren't flying as much as you were and you're going to feel crappy because you're going to wonder what are my peers thinking you know here I am I should be at work but I'm not 
and it's going to make you feel like crap. My point is, that's normal. Mm-hmm. You know, get over it. It is the, the way life works out. And one of the stories I tell when I was a squadron commander, F-16 squadron commander, um, we get ready for an ORI, which is an operational readiness inspection. Big deal. I mean, you do well in that. You know, basically we used to joke and say, if you do well, look left, look right, you're getting the next rank. You don't do well, look left, look right, that's the highest rank you're ever going to get. And so you really want to do well, and you train for it, you practice it. And they, the, the thing they love to do on day one of the inspection is walk up to the commander and have them an, an exercise card that says, you're dead. They want to say, are you a leader or are you a dictator? Have you trained your people to think for themselves? Do all decisions have to go through you, and now you're dead, and the unit just totally caves? So they would always do that to pick somebody. So I was prepared for that. I trained my ops officer, my assistant ops officers, went down three levels. You can kill a whole bunch of people, and we'll still be able to operate, right? Well, we've been training for this, and my father, who at the time was 73, got esophageal cancer. And my mom called me on the Wednesday uh, before the big inspection was on the following Monday, going to be the whole week of that next week. My mom called me on a Wednesday and said, your dad's chemo didn't go well. His kidney shut down. I think you need to come home. And I'm like, holy crap. My piston, my professional piston had been stuck really high because I've been getting ready for this inspection. It was super high because it was less than a week away. And, I, I, you know, my wife, I had to tell my wife and son, I'm sorry, but this is important. This is important for us. And they understood. So I was, you know, missing dinners and wasn't able to go out, you know, eat dinner with, you know, friends or whatever. But once my mom said that, I was like, Okay, holy crap. What am I going to do? And so I thought for about five seconds, I thought, I'm going to go home. I only got one dad. And I would never forgive myself if I didn't go home. So I called the wing commander. It was a guy. It was Colonel Wida. He became the uh, uh, commandant out here, became General Wida. And I said, sir, I, th- I think I need to go home. I know it's terrible timing. And he didn't even hesitate. He goes, yes, you need to go home. I said, I've trained my people. My ops officer, my assistant ops officer will be good. They'll be fine without me, which to me is the sign of a good leader that you've trained people to operate on their own. Um, and I went home, but I felt like crap. What, what are my other squadron commanders? I, I'm not here. What are my people thinking? The boss is not here for this big inspection. I went home. My dad died three days later. I was there at his side when he died. I would have never forgiven myself for not being there. But there was no balance. I had to jam the personal piston high and sub-optimize my job in a very difficult situation didn't affect my career. We got an outstanding rating. My squadron did great, even though I wasn't there. Um, but it was a tough decision. But you're going to make those piston decisions every day. T- and the only time you have balance is as they pass. Mm. As those pistons pass, for one instant in time, there's a little bit of balance. But this idea that you can find this perfect balance, and this is going to work all the time, it just that's not the way it works. You're going to optimize your job, sub-optimize your family. You're going to optimize your family and sub-optimize your job. You're going to do that stuff all throughout your life. And it's going to feel uncomfortable. Get used to it. There's a whole bunch of decisions to be made. Absolutely, right? And there's big and small decisions, decisions, right? I mean, your first decision was coming here. That was a big decision. And I I tell the cadets, man, your life is a function of the choices you take. Some are bigger, some are small. I mean, I had an Air Force scholarship. I could go to any school at Air Air Force ROTC. I had a pilot slot already. When I sat at the kitchen table and made the decision of what school I was going to go to, and I wanted to go to a small school, so I could compete with less people for my pilot slot, and I wanted it to have a good engineering program. And once I picked the school that I was going to go to, that meant I was going to meet my wife, which put my son on this planet. So I told my son, if I had not, if I'd chosen to go to a different school, you wouldn't be here. I'd have met somebody else, right? So your life is a function of the choices. Some are big, some are small, uh, some are you know conscious, and some are subconscious. Um, and you just have to accept that that's the way your life's going to be. Mm-hmm. You're going to make lots of choices. Yeah, I think that emphasizes the, the idea of discretion 
Is I I just went to a uh, what's it called, the Academy Oath Project where mm-hmm. they talk about uh, they they emphasize this uh, thing called the Bill of Obligations, right? Kind of matching the Bill of Rights. Sure. And we do we discussed it in F one after, and um, one thing that I pulled from it was they're all general guidelines. Sure. And that involves a large amount of discretion of like okay we here are these kind of moral ethical boundaries right but those are only boundaries sure. you have discretion as to where on this spectrum you Correct. actually want to be and i just think uh all the the examples of the times that you had to employ like your own decision calculus right. of where do i wait this right like almost setting up a mental decision matrix right. as to where this fits in my priorities. And it's based on all those decisions and all of the baggage of my life. So, for example, if my dad, dad and I hated each other, I probably wouldn't have gone home, right? I mm-hmm. mean, so, you know, depending, all, there's so many variables in people's lives. So it's really hard to overlay a template onto each person and go, you should do this, you should do this. But, you know, I, my rule of thumb has been when I catch myself rationalizing about why this is different, that I am different, and therefore it's okay for me. I need to stop myself and go, you're trying to rationalize. You're trying to make a decision that you know in your heart is wrong, and you're trying to rationalize to somehow make it more easy to swallow. And when I talk to the cadets about the core values, you know, service for self, does that mean your family always comes second? No. Sometimes your personal piston's going to be up there. You know, you got to take care of your spouse. you got to take care of your kids, your, your parents, whatever. So it's not like service for self means that your family always comes second. You know, and, and you know, in- integrity first you know, well, what does that mean to you? Well, you know, it means I'll always do the right thing. Yeah, I get that. But it also means that you're going to do the right thing even when nobody would know. Even when you're the only one that knows, you'll know, right? Um, and you, like, for example, doing your taxes. Oh, I'm going to, I can do this and they'll never catch me. Yeah, but you'll know. And you make enough of those decisions, eventually you become basically, you know, a, a, you know, a, ter- a bad person, right? Mm-hmm. And excellence in all we do just means that, hey, no matter what, no matter who you're working with, what the topic is, who you're working for, you don't get to choose to suck. You still got to kill. You can't walk up and give a, a briefing and go, well, we would have done a better job, but we didn't really like our boss and you know, the topic's kind of boring. But like, what? No, excellence <laughs> and all we do, man. So those, th- those, those belief systems ought to drive your behavior. And it's up to you to decide whether you think it matters or not. Mm-hmm. But usually it's rationalization. People find themselves going, well, I know that's the rule, but that's for the other person. It's like I used to joke saying stop signs are made for people with no judgment, right? Yeah. It's like I don't really want to stop at this stop sign. I'm going to roll right through this. My wife would get all mad at me, and I'm like, we're in the middle of nowhere. What difference does it make? She goes, there's a stop sign. You're supposed to stop, right? And I had to stop rationalizing it. But, you know, I'm a better driver because I'm an F-16 pilot. That's totally wrong mm. BS because it has nothing to do with it. Yeah, I actually last night I was listening to a Jocko Willing podcast and oh, yeah. had Admiral yeah. McRaven on uh-huh. uh, the the Wisdom of the Wisdom, Bullfrog uh, yeah. episode yeah. and um, it was on a, a similar tangent that he had just gotten into an accident like a parachuting accident uh-huh. and his body was all torn up and he was a I think he was a colonel at that point I don't know uh-huh. I could be wrong I don't know a colonel would be jumping out of a plane or something like uh-huh. that but um certainly not on purpose <laughs> yeah <laughs> so he had been injured and um they were doing PT but his body was like still broken from this injury and he uh I think this is a little bit of a a niche example because Navy SEALs do anything under any conditions right but so he was doing PT and his body was in terrible uh condition he said they ran Within 20 seconds, the group was out of sight of him because he was going that slow, but he kept chugging along. Right. There was a, uh, a young lieutenant that ran the, 
did a lap and basically lapped. And when he got to him, he was like, sir, what are you doing out here? You have right. nothing left to prove to anyone. Like, correct. You're, yeah. And he's like, you know what? I guess you have a point in that. I don't have anything to prove in the sense that, okay, I've done all this before, right. but as a leader, as soon as you quote unquote, don't have anything to prove, you're not the right guy for the uh-huh. job. So I think that, um, I mean, that I, brings I, it I, in yeah, integrity. I like I, yeah. I'm the leader. I have to do this no matter what. And right. I will lose, the, uh, I guess I wouldn't lose the respect to my people, but right. internally, uh, I wouldn't feel the same if right. I wasn't, out but it also might that. mean it's time for you to exit stage. Right. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. uh, for example, you know, Everybody talks about Seinfeld. You know, he's remarkably successful, but he left at the top of his game because he wanted to leave at the top of his game as opposed to people talking about, you know, he should have quit years ago and that kind of stuff. Now, for example, as a commander um, flying the S-16, you know, the jet can pull 9Gs, but I don't want to pull 9Gs because it hurts. <laughs> and I'm old, and it doesn't go away. I mean, when I was younger, you could pull it all, you know, next time, I'm fine. The next, and you start to get 30 or 40, you're like, ow. You know, the next day you hurt, you can't walk, whatever. And so I learned that, okay, I have enough proficiency that instead of me doing, you know, GFM by pulling lots of Gs, I need to be more of a chess player. Mm -hmm. I'll do this, you do this, then I'll do this, and then I'll shoot you, gun you, whatever. And so I'd get in engagements and shoot somebody down, and I only pulled five Gs. And they'd say, sir, you only pulled five Gs. And i go, and I won. (laughs) I don't have to pull nine Gs. There are times when you might have to, but if you don't have to, you don't have to. So you, you kind of modify what you do to make it so you can still survive. But if, if I couldn't win and I couldn't pull nine G's and it took nine G's to win, then I need to try to get out before I become the decrepit old guy that people are in the hallways whispering about. I don't want to be that person. Right. So sometimes, you know, you want to be successful, but there's also times you have to look yourself in the mirror and go, it's time. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was time to retire. I love flying, but I knew what are the odds of a brigadier general being the wing commander? Oh yeah, that could happen. But there's, you know, on one hand, probably F-16 bases that I could probably go to, and uh, that's not going to happen. So I had to decide, I'm going to pivot, time to rebrand, time to do something different. Now, when I sit here and watch F-16 fly out my windows here, I get a little melancholy. Going, <laughs> mm, I used to do that. I kind of miss that. But I don't miss the, the, uh, the stress. Um, I was a mission commander, you know, leading aircraft into northern Iraq. And I remember laying in bed. We were based in Insulik. It's just thinking about all the crap that could go wrong, right? You know, tanker could crump, jammers not work, whatever, right? AWACS isn't working. And, you know, I'm in an F-16. It's not like I got a, you know, a staff behind me in the back seat. You know, you're keeping track of stuff with, you know, grease pencils and writing on your kneeboard. And I would, I would be, I would just almost get, you know, an aneurysm and get, you know, uh, your stomach is churning thinking about all this shit that could go wrong. And you're playing the what-if drill because you're trying to prepare yourself so when it does happen, you got an answer. I don't miss that at all. Mm. I just don't. Especially as a professor here, come on, how much stress is there, right? I mean, I write the tests. I write the lesson plans. You know, other than you guys asking me a hard question or being a crappy instructor, it's, there's not a lot of stress here, right? Um, having said that, though, that can get boring. So that's why I force myself to bring in new topics. You know, go to Yale and learn about behavioral economics. Go to MIT. Try to open up my aperture and, and get into areas I'm not comfortable with and walk into a room and realize I am the dumbest person at the table. <laughs> As a colonel, I used to sit at the table and realize you're all smarter than me in your areas. And I think to be a successful leader, you have to be okay with that. I mean, as long as you're the best leader at the table, you have to be okay that technically the people that are sitting around the table will be smarter than you. And maybe as a, you know, even as a vice president, you're better at marketing. You know unmanned systems, but you know space. I mean, when I took over the space business unit, I'm thinking to myself, I don't know anything about space. I know nothing about it. And I remember General Jumper telling me, do you know how to lead people? I said, yeah. He said, do you know how to manage resources? Mm-hmm. 
Do you know how to get stuff done without making excuses? Yeah. That's why we want you. Those people that are your 26 program managers, they're going to know more about space than their left pinky, but you need to lead them. So when I walked in for my first meeting, I could see a lot of nonverbal crossing arms, you know, who are you? Because I was from a different tribe. I was not from the space tribe. And the first thing I started off was, I know you know that I know that I don't know anything about space. <laughs> and I'm okay with that, but I'll learn. But I said, my job is to be a good leader. My job is to block and tackle so you can do all that space stuff. And they started laughing. And that's kind of how we got off on a good foot. And eventually I learned more about space, but I always knew they were smarter than me, and I was okay with that. So I tell the cadets that whether you be in the military or in the civilian world, the real secret to success is surrounding yourself with people that are smarter than you and being okay with it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I, I got some stuff I want to talk to you after the podcast about. Okay. Um, you kind of just dropped a whole bunch of gems, but are there is there any more advice that you would give no, to cadets? No, no, I have nothing else to add. Other than me, it's a great place to be. Um, you know, when people come into me and tell me, hey, I want to be a dual major, I'm like, don't do that. Be one major and spend most of your time focusing on learning about being a good leader. Because there's just no laboratory like this. Mm. And most college students don't get this, right? That's why we're an academy. We're not a university. We're an academy because we focus on leadership. And, and again, I'm not poo-pooing academics. Got to have a strong academic background. But we need leaders of character first because our country needs leaders that have strong academic backgrounds. So if you have extra free time, focus on can I volunteer to be in charge of even the smallest project? I'd get lieutenants in my squadron that would, didn't want to do small projects because it was beneath them. So they would suck at it. And then they'd wonder why we didn't give them anything better to do. It's like, well, if you can't do that, why would I give you something you know, better? And so I said, everything you do, kill it, knock it out of the park, and you'll keep getting more and more levels of responsibility. But you should be trying to find places where you can practice being a leader. Because you, know, you, you can make mistakes here, and you know, okay, you might get a bad grade. Um, and I also tell the cadets, look, I'm not telling you to get bad grades, but GPA, yes, you should try your best to get the best scores you can. You guys aren't average. You wouldn't be here. You guys and girls would not be here if you were average. But you shouldn't be shooting for Bs. You shoot for As, right? Um, but when you leave here, people are going to probably ask you where you went to school. They might see your ring and know it. They might even ask you what your degree was but they're never going to ask you what your GPA was unless you're going to go back to school and get a master's, right? So I'm not saying, I'm not giving people an out telling them don't do well in your classes, but don't get so wrapped around an axle that that's all you focus on and you forget about being a good leader. Because I'd much rather you get a B in a class and be a good leader than get an A and be a crappy leader. Mm-hmm. So keep that in mind. Well, sir, I really appreciate your time and expertise in multiple fields. Uh, yeah, I appreciate you lending your office and giving me your time. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Andrew.